Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matthias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of our show. Today, we are joined by Matt Owens, who is a litigator with Witters Worldwide. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you, Matthias. It's great to be with you and uh, glad to have a chance to, to have a conversation with you today. Absolutely. Not only you are a litigator, but 90% of what you do is in probate court. And that's exactly our niche. That's exactly what we do. So I can't wait to pick your brain. <laughs> okay, great. So what we're going to be talking about today is breach of fiduciary duty. How fun. Breach of fiduciary duty. So first of all, for our audience, can you tell us uh, in the context of probate and trust and um, what is breach of fiduciary duty? Yeah, so it could be a whole bunch of different things, but I'll give you some, some general information on it. So first of all, who are the fiduciaries that we're talking about in trust right. and probate? Typically, you're talking about the trustee of a trust or the conservator of a conservatorship estate, or you're talking about the personal representative of a probate estate. And personal right. representative has a few different names like executor, administrator, or special administrator. But so th those are generally the, the fiduciaries we're talking about. And they owe various fiduciary duties, meaning they need to do their job correctly. So that means um, do their job in a way that's consistent with California law, and then also consistent with, in the case of a trust, um, the terms of the trust, so following the rules of the trust. And if they get off track and they do something they're not supposed to do, we call that a breach of their fiduciary duty because um, they've now violated the trust terms or they've violated some uh, statute in the California probate code. That makes sense. Um, can you give us uh, some example of common that you encounter in your practice? What are some of these common breaches? Yeah, so some of them are more egregious than others. The, the easy ones to spot are, you know, Uncle Bob is the trustee of the trust, and he just stole a bunch of money from the trust because he thought no one was looking, okay? okay. So that, those are like the, the easy to spot. Someone's just taking money or taking assets. And you usually find that when you get an accounting or someone's got access to bank accounts and you see that there's a bunch of money missing or assets right. missing. So those are kind of the easy ones to identify and spot. The more interesting ones are probably the more subtle ones. So I can give you a couple examples. You have as a trustee or any, any fiduciary that's investing assets and holding assets for the benefit of someone else, you typically have a duty to diversify, meaning you need to invest like a prudent investor would. And there's all these rules around what that means. I won't bore you with the details of that, but basically you have to be uh, doing a reasonably good job in terms of investing the assets. What happens a lot is um, you've got a settlor of a trust or so someone who creates a trust, mom, mm -hmm. dad, grandma, whatever it is, they create a trust while they're alive, they can invest in whatever they want. So right. maybe they like Apple stock, maybe they like Tesla stock and they just mm -hmm. have a whole bunch of it. So they can hold like a pretty heavy concentration. That's fine, that's their assets, they can do whatever they want. Right. As soon as they die, 
and a son steps in or a daughter steps in or whomever, they step in as trustee to then administer that trust. Well, now they have all these duties under California law and probably the trust document mm -hmm. to diversify the, the portfolio. So they got to sell some of that Apple stock, sell some of that Tesla stock and have a better asset mix. So I see that issue come up a lot where people don't realize that, oh, shoot, I need to actually diversify this portfolio a little bit here. Right. I might get sued if the Apple stock tanks. So that's one. I'll give you another one, which is just failure to keep proper records. Typically, fiduciaries are going to have to give some level of an accounting. That can be a formal. There's a probate code section that defines, defines like what a formal accounting looks like. It can be informal, but either way, they're going to need to give information to the beneficiaries or the person for whom they're holding the money. Um, and sometimes fiduciaries don't do a great job of that because they're not anticipating that at some point in the future, they're going to have to give that information. Um, so I kind of see that a lot, failure to, to maintain records properly. I could go on, but I don't want to... No, no. These are, these are all extremely helpful. One of the questions that I wanted to ask you in reference of what you said, you know, when, when somebody's appointed, specifically when we talk about probate, when somebody is appointed an administrator, whether they be administrator or executor, they are the judge informs them of certain duties, you know, like prior to the appointment, um, at least... Um, and you mentioned in the code, there's actually things in the code like diversification or, or what, you know, minimizing risk for, for the beneficiaries, for the, for the beneficiary of the estate. Um, when somebody comes to you and they have been appointed or rather they, they you know, they, they feel like there's something nefarious going on, et cetera, do you help them find, you know, accountants that, spe that specifically work in the world of probate, of, of probate accounting, et cetera, et cetera? Or is this something that your firm does in-house? It's a good question because a lot of different firms do this different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and it might even vary from attorney to attorney within a firm if you've got, if we're talking about a big firm. But I'll tell you what I do. If I'm representing a trustee or another, another fiduciary, I very early in the process make sure they have a good relationship with a CPA who's going to be able to do the tax returns and tax reporting for whatever that entity is. Because if it's a trust, for example, as, as you know, Matthias, there's going to be a fiduciary income tax return that that trustee has right. to file. Not everyone just knows about that intuitively. So I make mm -hmm. sure that my trustee clients are, get, are set up with a CPA so that's on their radar. But that's the tax reporting and the, the income tax payment. Separately, there's the fiduciary accounting component, which might sound similar, but they're actually pretty different functions. So fiduciary accounting is when someone creates a document that's in a particular format that's set forth in probate code section 1061. And for trusts, you can find more details on it in like 16062 and thereafter. That um, tells you what has to go in these various schedules in this document. Some CPAs know how to do that. Others are not familiar with that. So what I usually do is tell my clients to go to people that prepare those type of fiduciary accountings for a living. There are um, firms and solo practitioners that do that. And so I, I refer my clients out to those folks. Um, our firm and most firms will have the capability of doing that in-house, but it takes a lot of time to have a paralegal just create an accounting and it might, you know, it might be several days worth of work and data entry. So I myself typically don't have them prepared in-house, but some people do, and that's perfectly appropriate, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and depends on depends on the case. You're right. Very good. Thank you for sharing that that information. Now, this next question I have for you, it's a little bit nuanced, so bear with me. I want to try and, and kind of convey to the audience the difference between legal obligation 
and fiduciary responsibilities. And I kind of, you know, some things will be in the code, like you mentioned. Some things you're required to do. Some things are more a matter of ethics, of like the approach that you do. Now, when you're working with a client, how do you help them and essentially make, make a distinction? Be, well, they don't necessarily need to make a distinction, but at least understand the differences between the two. Do you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's not crystal clear what the right answer is, right? Because mm -hmm. there's not a probate code section to deal with every single issue. Right. I mean, it's a it's a thick code, but it can't cover everything. And similarly, your trust documents, I mean, it might be a very long trust, but it's not going to cover every single scenario. And so a lot of times you get into an area where the trustee is just making a discretionary call on, you know, what's in the best interest of this set of trust beneficiaries under the circumstances, and they just have to balance um, the interests of the various beneficiaries and try to make the right decision. Sometimes the interests of the beneficiaries actually conflict. So an example would be, you might have a lifetime beneficiary who's entitled to income distributions for their lifetime and possibly even discretionary principal distributions. And I can talk more about that if you want, but then, so that's a lifetime beneficiary, but then you have remainder beneficiaries, mm -hmm. meaning the folks that are going to inherit after that lifetime beneficiary is dead. Okay, well, you might have different investment strategies that might benefit one over the other. Um, so that's an example of sort of an inherent conflict. You could say that a trustee has to navigate and make sure that um, they're doing a good job for all of the beneficiaries. Those are judgment calls. And so those are kind of like business decisions that aren't necessarily spelled out exactly by the probate code. There's certainly guidance on those types of things in the probate code, but you know you have to look at all the, the beneficiary specific circumstances. You have to look at the trust specific holdings, you know, what, what are the assets? Um, and so it is, I have a lot of those kind of kinds of conversations with trustees. And frankly, that's a good example of why trustees should hire lawyers to make sure they, um, you know, are getting good advice on some of those tougher calls, but you're just, you're just balancing what, you know, what's in the best interest of all of these trustees against what's my liability potentially if I make the wrong call and, you know, how conservative do I want to be in the decision-making process? That's fairly general, but, you know, that gives you an idea of kind of the, the things I think about. No, it makes total sense. And also in addition to that, it's actually, I actually appreciate what you shared in the sense that, you know, one of your clients can come to you and say, look, I'm thinking about making this decision. What are your thoughts here? Am I, you know, am I out of line or are we okay? Like, you know, you made a very simple example, like, you know, the the, the Tesla and, and Apple stocks. I mean, do we have to buy an index fund now? You know, Tesla is doing so great, you know, and, and all, all these things that are generally perfectly fine questions because a lot of the estates, you know, that are uh, the more sophisticated they are, they they, they may have a large holdings in, in, in assets that are not black and white, you know? And so and so that's, that's a good question. Now, um, another thing that I wanted to talk to you about is what are the things that you advise uh, your clients in how to identify and then subsequently prove the breach of fiduciary duty? Oh, so if I'm representing the beneficiary, maybe, and I'm looking yeah, over the trustees. Yeah, and, and yeah. somebody and somebody comes to you and says, look, I think something something's going on here that uh, I don't know if you find yourself a lot in that in that position oh, of yeah. representing the beneficiary. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> so my I definitely do. So my client base is a pretty good mix of I represent a lot of trustees, but then I also mm -hmm. represent a lot of trust beneficiaries who are, you know, looking over the shoulder of the trustee. 
you know, sometimes a client will come to a beneficiary client will come to me and say, you know, hey, my brother's a trustee and he did this and I don't think that was right. And so I have a very specific ask, right? It's like, mm -hmm. is this allowed under the trust under California law? Right. Other times, other times it's not as narrow of a task. And it's just like, gee, I think something might be, you know, off here. Can you kind of take a look globally? Mm -hmm. um, if it's the latter situation, then I always start with trying to get as much information as I can. And that's, I want to know what the financial information is for this trust. What was on hand? What were the assets that were on hand when that trustee took over? Mm -hmm. And then what are the assets on hand now? Do I have an accounting, whether it's formal or informal between those two time periods? And then you can kind of really look and see what has gone on. People can try to, well, just say it, hide things in accounting. Sure, sure. If you're not, if you're not sophisticated uh, in in this area, you might not notice that there's an issue. Um, so I do think it's good to have a lawyer or someone that's very familiar with accountings look at them to see if someone's trying to hide something. I can give you an example of that. I mean, I had an accounting one time where, you know, a lifetime beneficiary who was the surviving spouse, and um, one of the assets in the trust was an interest in a partnership. So it was like about a million bucks of value for this trust's interest in a much larger partnership. And the partnership had been sold during the accounting period. Mm -hmm. So there's a liquidation event and the trust is getting its principal back from this partnership, basically from this investment. Mm -hmm. Well, the surviving spouse was entitled to income from the trust, but not principal from the trust. Okay. The trust gave her pretty wide discretion to allocate certain items as between income and principal. Okay. So she said, okay, well, I'm going to allocate this million bucks to income, and then I'll just take it as a distribution to myself. Uh, that was not permitted under the trust because there are other provisions that say things like, if you, even if you have a power, you have to exercise it reasonably in the, in the best interest of all the other beneficiaries and that sort of thing. So we looked at that and said, I don't think so. I don't think she just gets to take that income. And so we made a demand. The other side disagreed. We ended up going to arbitration on that because the trust had an arbitration clause and we won. So we had the arbitrators say, no, that was actually return of principle. So she couldn't take it. So that was a breach of fiduciary duty. Um, but that gives you an idea of some of the stuff that like, if you were just looking at the accounting and you're a trust beneficiary, all that is, is that that item of the money coming in, does it get put on the income column or the principal column? And if you're not, you don't know what to look for, you could easily miss that type of thing. That makes total sense. So in this particular case, she had to give the money back to the trust. Oh, yeah. And then and get, and get replaced as trustee. Yeah. And get replaced as trustee. But then she had the clause of income, right? She could take an yeah. income. Yeah, right. she was still entitled to income after she paid the damages back. Yeah. So plus, I can't honestly can't remember if we got an award of attorney's fees, but um, I'm fairly certain we would have asked for attorney's. Fees. It's been a few years. So I can't remember. Yeah. We probably asked for other things too, other bells and whistles in got addition it. to returning that money. So the first when somebody comes to you and says, Matt, look, I, I think something's going on that it's not, you know, the best thing probably for for the trust, for everybody involved. The first thing you do is essentially request some records, do a little forensic accounting or whatever the process is to start looking at it. Now, let's kind of reverse the question. And let me ask you, when, when somebody is a, is a trustee who is a client of yours or an administrator who's a client of yours, and 
somebody and comes to you and they say, look, Matt, some of these people beneficiaries, they're, they're assuming that the person is doing everything okay. Uh, they, they're going to tell you, look, they're, they're starting to doubt me or question my decisions, or I think they're going to do something. How do you gear, you say, like, okay, let's gear up and prepare if there's going to be a challenge, if they're going to try and replace you? What are the steps that you take in that case? Well, I think um, probably the most important thing is just making sure that trustee has actually delivered all the information and documents they're, that they're supposed to so that, mm -hmm. so that if it ends up in front of a judge, I can say to the judge, hey, my trustee client has been completely transparent. They gave all the information, they gave all the documents, and hopefully if it's not too late by the time they hire me, they did it within the timelines that are you know set forth in, under California law because there are some, some timing requirements there. Um, so that's what I try to do is I say, all right, well, what did you give them? You know, and if, if we need to complete the picture by comp giving a full accounting, giving other records or whatever, um, I try to make sure my trustee clients are doing that. So we keep them as clean as possible if we end up in front of a judge. One thing that trustees try to, that they get a little nervous about sometimes, and I see this when I'm representing beneficiaries a lot, is when you give an accounting, that's just one like document that's been prepared. But there's actually a case under California sort of common laws, Strauss versus Superior Court case that says if you're a beneficiary, you're also entitled to all of the trust records. So mm -hmm. anytime a, an accounting is given, you know, there might be some exceptions, but generally speaking, anytime an accounting is given, all the source records should be given too. So if I'm representing a trustee, I'll say, let's give them the accounting. Let's also give them all the bank statements, you know, all the receipts, all the stuff that's going to substantiate your accounting. If you do all of that, that tends to go a, a long way in satisfying beneficiary concerns. And then if they still have some specific objections because, well, I don't think you should have done this or that. Okay, now we can narrow the scope of what we're fighting over. But I, I try to get the information out there as, as, you know, as reasonably quickly as I can. That makes sense. Now, we talked about, you, you in the example you gave, you, you mentioned briefly that the person was... Um, replaced as a trustee. So we can say that that's one of the consequences of breach of fiduciary duty. You know, if you are found that you have committed breach of fiduciary duty, you may lose your position uh, within the trust or the estate. Um, what are some of the remedies? I think you mentioned some of the things as well. Restitution is one of the remedy. And you talked about attorney fees. Is that pretty much what, what somebody can expect? It says if they're, if they're successful in their challenge, that's what they can expect, a restitution of funds if the funds are available, obviously, and a replacement of the fiduciary. Yeah, so there's 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 more that you can seek too. So yeah, so it's definitely the damages or the restitution, meaning you got to put the assets back, or if they're not available, then the sort of cash value of those assets, because sometimes right. you might have taken stock and then sold sure. it or whatever. But um, so that's one thing you have to return it. And under the probate code, in theory, you could charge interest on that. Um, right. So there's a case called Uziel versus Khadijah that clarifies that interest on those damages is 10%, which is a pretty good interest rate on any sort of investment. So, you know, you could get interest on it. Um, if there was appreciation on stock from the time you took it to the time you return it, you got to give the appreciation back. And then there, there is statutory attorney fee shifting if it's a particular type of claim. So a couple examples would be if it's an if it's a claim under probate code section 850, which is typically a wrongful taking type of claim, then probate code section 859 says you can get an award of attorney's fees if you prevail on that 850 claim. 859 also says you can get what's referred to as double damages 
Um, and that's some it frequently pled. So I'll, if I'm representing a beneficiary, I will consider asking for double damages if there's been a breach of fiduciary duty. And when I'm defending trustees, the beneficiaries typically ask for double damages. That's totally discretionary by the judge, though. So it typically it's going to require some sort of pretty egregious set of facts. Um, but it happens. And there, there was a case that came out a few years ago, a state of Ashlock, where the underlying um, sort of property that was taken um, was several million dollars. I can't remember the exact number. It was like several million dollars. And the uh, court tagged that fiduciary with a double damages award. So it's not only returning that several million, it's then returning twice that value on top of it. So it's really three times. I mean, you could look at it as it's really three times because it's returned the principal plus double damages as a penalty. So, and then there's other, you can always plead punitive damages too, but that's, you're not likely to get those in our types of cases. And unless they're, you know, pretty unique facts, I guess I shouldn't, you're not, say you're not likely to, you could, but, um, you know, it doesn't frequently occur. So that's sort yeah. of the menu of, of damages you, you can seek in those types of cases. You know, I do, I do, I'm just going to open a parenthesis. I really love how well you know your stuff. I'm just, I'm just telling you that, <laughs> you know, when, when you start citing the code and cases, oh my God, uh, I absolutely love it. So let me, let me, <laughs> let me, let me go back one second and ask you, you know, we talk about replacement. So when somebody says, okay, let's replace the, you know, you're successful or let's replace the trustee or let's, let's replace um, the fiduciary, whoever they may be, do you often recommend hiring a professional fiduciary or a corporate trustee? And in what in what cases do you think it's necessary maybe to bring it outside of the interest part of the interested parties? Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you asked that because I mean this is one of my points that I try to stress with um with trustee clients and just really in any of these cases. I do advocate pretty heavily for neutral trustees, mm -hmm. whether that be a corporate trustee, like a bank, you know, the banks that have trust departments, um, yes. or in California, as, as you know, Matias, we have licensed professional fiduciaries. I'm sure you work with many of those folks yes. um, in the real estate side. Um, so I do advocate pretty hard for getting those people involved and in administering trusts. If you have a sibling who's who's serving as trustee and they're fighting with another sibling, or you have stepmom who's serving as trustee and she's fighting with the kids from the prior marriage, it's just so much harder to get that trust back on track if you have mm -hmm. that family dynamic versus getting a completely neutral professional person in there. Um, yeah. I just think that you know can go a long way in, in avoiding or at least reducing the the disputes and that we see. Um, but how does that happen though? So you have to. If I'm trying to remove a trustee or suspend a trustee, really what you want to do is before you get, so now we're in court, right? Because this is a dispute. So right. before you get to your hearing, you really want to have your ducks in a row where you can show up and say to the judge, hey, judge, not only am I asking you to kick this person out, but I have a candidate ready to go. They already signed a consent. Here it is. You know, it's such and such professional fiduciary and they're ready to jump in here. So that's kind of the way you have to set it up in litigation and make sure you actually have someone ready to slot in. Um, so I typically do that when I, in the run-up to hearings is I'll have a, I'll talk to a, a few fiduciaries. I'll have my clients look at them online to see who they like, mm -hmm. and I'll find one that's willing to serve. I have them sign a consent and I show up at the hearing and say, hey, judge, appoint this person. Um, it doesn't always work, but you you know if it's if someone's breached some fiduciary duties, you got a pretty good chance of getting them kicked out. Um, so that's what I do. The corporate trustees, I, I 
have great relationships with a lot of corporate trustees, love them. They serve a, a key role in our in our uh, ecosystem of trust and estates. They typically, this is not always true, but typically don't want to get involved in litigated matters. Like, so if you're going to say, hey, we have this big trust dispute going on in, you know, LA probate court, and you go to a co corporate trustee and say, hey, will you step in? Um, there's there's some that would, and and maybe any of them would under the right circumstances, but um, they're going to be less interested in serving in that role than, say, a licensed professional fiduciary. So I'm usually looking at those licensed professional fiduciaries who are individuals mm -hmm. or they're at smaller firms to to serve that function. In addition to that, I've actually I've actually heard uh, no I, I, that that some of these corporate trustees are very careful at what assets they take. I know that a lot of them don't want to become landlords. So people that have apartment buildings, a lot of the times they find themselves having to look for solutions elsewhere when those are the type of assets that Wells Fargo doesn't necessarily want to become a landlord in LA. That's right. That's a good point. Yep. <laughs> okay. This has been truly wonderful. Let's talk, let's talk about your journey. I'm always interested in that. And I always ask this question, you know, when you decided to go to law school, were you going to be like, someday I'm going to be working in probate? <laughs> Definitely not. When I went to law school, I wanted to do international human rights stuff, and then oh, wow. uh, realized realized pretty quickly I couldn't pay off my student loans doing that. So I uh, I became a litigator. All I knew coming out of law school is that I wanted to do. Um, I had decided I wanted to do litigation, and so um, I just fell into a trust in a state litigation position. I went to law school up in the Bay Area at Santa Clara. And there was a local firm up there, um, Aaron Reichert, Carpel and Ripple, great boutique trust and estates firm. They do planning, administration, and litigation. They happen to have a you know junior associate litigation spot open. And I thought, you know, I just want to litigate. I want to do trial stuff. I want to do evidence code. I want to do, you know, all this. It's all the same discovery that applies, mm -hmm. discovery rules and civil rules that apply. So I took that that job and uh, ended up liking it. And 12 years later, that's definitely my niche or my specialty area. Um, don't anticipate making any um, practice area changes now that I've now that I've learned those code sections and cases that you were you were commenting on earlier. I think I'm in it. I think I'm in it for the long haul now. But you know, plus uh, becoming a, a human rights uh, lawyer, it's not like being an athlete that you can, you you can only do it at a, up to a certain age. There's always there always may be a That's chapter right. in your life where That's that right. where that happens <laughs> to happens to be your desired focus. That was great. I love it. So basically, you've always litigated in probate court, right? Yeah, I started practicing in 2011, so I guess you call it about 12 years now. That's all. I, that's all I've done. That's awesome. You know, one of the things, and I mentioned this, my audience is probably tired by now, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I like the sound of my voice. People have to stay in their own lane. If you can stay in your lane, that's, it's so important. Do not hire an attorney who also can paint your house. Hire an attorney who should just do what they do and they do it well, because it takes so long to get good at what you do. Okay. Now, before I let you go, I would love, you know, it's the back of the card moment. I have a list of 30 questions. I want you to pick a random number. And I will ask you that question from one to 30. One to 30. I'm going to go 16. 16. What are you grateful for today? Uh, what am I grateful for today? I mean, to keep myself out of trouble, I better say my wife, I think. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. Okay. Let's, let's, let's move down. I will not accept that as an answer. I agree with you. And 100%, I'm also extremely grateful for my wife. Wonderful. Let's move our wives. What else are you grateful for? I guess I'm I'm grateful for um, 
you know, having fell into this practice area and, and formed the relationships that I have with my sort of recurring clients who are like professional fiduciaries in the area. I mean, mm -hmm. it's so nice to have those recurring relationships that, um, you know, that you can have folks that you can do a lot of good work with, but also go have a beer with, you know? And so I guess I'm grateful for those, uh, those folks in my, you know, referral network down here in San Diego. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. Now, for anyone that is interested in getting a hold of you, what is the best way to reach out to you, Matt? Yeah, probably uh, just by email. So you can go on the Withers Worldwide website and find me or my, my email address, which is pretty long. So sorry for that, is Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot Owens, O-W-E-N-S at WithersWorldwide.com. We will put it in the show notes. So don't worry if you're listening to this on, on, on just listening and not watching. It will be in the show notes. Matt, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matthias. This was great and uh, enjoyed the conversation. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us for this episode. And we will see you on the next episode. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Probate Realtor Show. Find more episodes and interact with us at probaterealtor.la. That's probaterealtor.la. Listen, ask questions, and get results. Don't forget to like and subscribe. The probate realtor Matias Baker-Mazucci is a licensed real estate broker in California DRE number 02054763. Any legal information provided is for informational purposes only and not for the purpose of providing legal advice. Contact an attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal issue or problem. We make no guarantees as to the accuracy of any information. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you in the next episode.